Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Summer's coming. Fires are already burning. Mega droughts are not letting up. Forests are facing multiple threats at once. And William Andereg, associate professor in the University of Utah School of Biological Sciences, is working to understand the effects of threats, including climate change and drought, on trees and forests. He's the author on two new studies that uh, show how these forces could reshape forests. He says U.S. forests could look dramatically different by the end of the century. William Andereg uh, joins us for the hour. Uh, Professor Andereg, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so uh, I should uh, mention as well, this is, uh, the forests are getting a lot of uh, attention right now, the uh, latest... Uh, National Geographic is a special issue on forests. You're uh, you're quoted in there. Um, let me start with with this, and I'm uh, reading from an uh, interview, an article in theconversation.com. Um, you say the future of forests is on a knife's edge with a tug of war between two very important forces: the benefits trees get from increasing levels of carbon dioxide and the stresses they face from climate, such as heat, drought, fires, pests, and pathogens. I want to start with the benefits. Uh, I guess carbon dioxide uh, a benefit to trees. It is. I, I mean, we know when you uh, do experiments in greenhouses, for example, and you turn up the carbon dioxide in the air. Uh, trees and, and really most plants are able to do more photosynthesis. And so that's always been thought that this will benefit them and potentially let them uh, grow more and maybe take more carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, so that's the basic understanding, right? More CO2 in the air is, is kind of more uh, driving force for photosynthesis. But of course, on the other side, uh, the, the, the stresses within, with the, you know, uh, global warming. That's right. And so this, this idea that CO2 is, um, you know, maybe, maybe the dominant forces is kind of what our studies are calling into question. And a lot of research has as well, that it's not just the effects of CO2, that in fact, there are probably some limits to how much plants can grow if, as CO2 goes up in the air. And on the flip side, of course, CO2 in the atmosphere causes climate change, and those stresses are, are very real and, and are having huge impacts already, in particular, uh, as you mentioned, droughts, temperature, and fires, and, and pests and pathogens. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of uh, eggs, if I could use that metaphor, a lot of eggs are being put in that, this basket, right, the forest basket, carbon offsets. Um, uh, you know, a lot of organizations, uh, governments are, are saying, well, we're, you know, that forests are going to save us. I guess your, um, your studies are, are at least indicating some caution on that theory. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, there are uh, a lot of organizations, companies, and governments interested in, in using forests and, and the land more broadly to pull CO2 out of the air and help tackle climate change. Um I guess it's worth noting that even in the best case scenario, forests are wildly successful at doing this and they don't die off from climate change. These are all pretty big ifs. They still only really help us tackle 10 to 15 percent of the problem. So the majority of tackling climate change has to come from reducing fossil fuel combustion. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get into some of the problems, some of the risks, and it, 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 you have interactive maps. So I urge people to, to go and uh, see those. It's pretty 
pretty spectacular to see some of the different scenarios. Uh, I wonder if you'd tell us about, uh, you know, healthy forest ecosystem. Uh, remind us what, uh, you know, what, what, what trees do. Absolutely. You know, there's, in addition to their ability to take carbon out of the atmosphere, forests do an incredible amount for us. Right? They clean the air, they clean the water, they provide all sorts of benefits for tourism and recreation. Uh, they, they provide direct benefits, things like timber and fuel as well. So they and and they also house huge amounts of species and other other plants and animals that we care about. So they healthy forests do this huge range for society. This these have been you know economically estimated in the range of trillions of dollars each year globally. Um, you know I think here in Utah forests are really an iconic part of our landscape. You know our mountains and our mountain forests are something that we all value and we has a huge part of our um, economic engine as well. It drives, you know, all sorts of tourism and, and things we care about. No, the, the, the reason there's, you know, so much excitement, some, so, so many people are counting on forests with regard to climate change, right, is that forests do uh, capture a lot of uh, carbon, right? They do. So, so currently uh, across the globe, forests are a net drawdown of, of carbon out of the atmosphere. They take about 20% of the CO2 that people put up every year, and they lock it away in trees. So that's, that's a huge benefit to us. It really slows the speed of climate change. Now, the, really the defining, one of the defining questions in the field right now is, is that going to continue over the 21st century? And I think a nice metaphor is there's a lot of a lot of warning lights flashing flashing on the dashboard here that forests may be increasingly in trouble with climate change. And one of the big picture things, one of the, the take homes that I always want folks to remember here is the speed and the amount of climate change matters immensely. That if we can slow the speed of climate change, forests have a lot better shot at staying healthy and at also helping take carbon out of the atmosphere. If we go crazy and, and you know keep burning huge amounts of fossil fuels, it's very likely lots of these forests are going to pass these thresholds and die off en masse. And that is also this vicious cycle then that they release the carbon back to the atmosphere, further worsening climate change. Right. That's, uh, I guess, immediately if it's a fire, right, the, the, that carbon comes out, or uh, over time uh, when it dies, decomposition? That's right. When a drought or a beetle or something like that kills forests, um, it's a little bit slower, but all of that carbon that was, well, the vast majority of that carbon that was locked up in the trunks um, and needles and roots is going to decompose ahead back to the atmosphere. Hmm. I wonder, maybe we could start, there are a couple papers that out uh, quite recently. Uh, maybe we could start with one which you uh, are, are trying to solve a question of... What is the key driver on the, that makes trees grow? Maybe we could uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this is a, was a really uh, fun and interesting study to work on. And so the, um, this has been a longstanding question in the field uh, that um, I, I always like to think of this as, as maybe like a, a cart moving down the road. If the cart moving down the road is trees growing, we actually have two horses hooked up to that cart, and we don't fully understand which one of those horses is really pulling the cart and which one is kind of along for the ride and, and when and where. And these two driving forces, these two horses hooked up to the cart, 
Uh, one is photosynthesis, and that makes a lot of sense. Photosynthesis provides the carbon that's needed for growing trees. But the other is actually the, the direct limits to uh, cells in the wood growing and dividing. And uh, in order for trees to grow, you really need both of those pieces. You need to have the carbon to build wood, but you also need the cells to actually grow and divide and extend out that new tree ring. So that was the big question in this study is, is which one of these two forces seems to be in control and, and when and where. Hmm. Now, you uh, use sensors on towers and forests? Yes. So the, the main way we went about trying to tackle that question is we needed to measure two things. We needed to measure tree growth, and that we can do really uh, elegantly with tree rings that you you drill a core into a, a tree, you pull it out, and in seasonal environments, so almost all places outside of the tropics, you get these beautiful lines of tree rings that tell us tree growth going back in time. Um, you know, every year these trees grow a new ring of growth. And then we needed photosynthesis of the whole forest. And these, uh, this is, is really measured with these large towers above forests, and uh, they have these sensors that measure the, um, the CO2 that's kind of blown up by the wind out of the forest. And, of course, that CO2 is actually lower than the rest of the atmosphere because the forest has done photosynthesis and pulled CO2 out of the air. And so by measuring this above the forest, you can get a, a pretty good estimate of the photosynthesis of the whole forest ecosystem below the tower. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. I, I, I was interested in the methods uh, here. Uh, so uh, the, these two horses pulling the cart, what what was your theory going in, or what was the kind of the conventional wisdom? You know, so the conventional wisdom for really the past four decades or so has been that photosynthesis is, is the dominant force, that it's the main horse pulling the cart, and everything else is along for the ride. Um, and, of course, this actually ties directly into this question of how much will rising CO2 levels fertilize forests and lead to more growth. If you think that photosynthesis or, you know, the evidence suggests that photosynthesis is the driving force here, more CO2 and more photosynthesis should lead to more growth. But there's been these increasing uh, sets of studies in, in kind of um, more local locations and smaller scale studies that are suggesting, hold on here, actually, it looks like cell expansion and division might be more important in lots of regions of the world. And that's actually what we found in this study, is that in the really the majority of sites we looked at, uh, photosynthesis wasn't really strongly linked to growth at all. It really seems a lot more like these direct limits on cell expansion and division are probably what's controlling these patterns of growth over time. And uh, that, I understand, that cell growth and division is more sensitive to, what, to temperature, to climate change? That's right. Yeah, so, you know, both, both photosynthesis and cell growth slow down when, con when conditions get dry. Um, but the, the key piece here is that cell growth is actually quite a bit more sensitive to drought stress. Um, and so this, of course, matters for a a changing climate where we're seeing more frequent and more severe droughts, uh, that tells us really that drought stress is likely to be a bigger damping force, a bigger uh, 
slowing force on tree growth than if it were photosynthesis driving growth. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, very interesting and, and somewhat surprising results. It is somewhat surprising. You know, I, it's um, th- this is something that I, I think a number of scientists were slowly coming around to, and there was definitely some studies from individual regions, but what was new here was our ability to look over you know, at a whole ecosystem level and, and very large swaths of um, North America and Europe and temperate biomes. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to work in the tropics, uh, which is a very important set of forests, because many tropical forests don't actually have tree rings to measure growth. So that's, um, that's an area that I think we really need more research in the future. And so that, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk, get into the in-depth on the other study. But uh, the, the, the two studies kind of have a similar message, don't they? They do. They're, they're really um, pretty complementary studies. Uh, they're, they're telling us a story that uh, Earth's forests are, are really kind of hanging on uh, by their nails and that the next decade or two of what the climate does and what we do on climate change matters immensely for the future of these forests. Mm. If you just joined us, we're talking with William Enderegg. He's associate professor in the uh, University of Utah School of Biological Sciences. He's working to understand the effects of threats, including climate change and drought on trees and forests. Of course, this is a enormously consequential. Uh, forests uh, soak up a lot of the, the carbon. Um that's a uh, that's problem, but they are vulnerable to uh, to climate change. Uh, on the other hand, um, we're going to be talking about uh, the other key study that we'll be talking about in this hour following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking about forests and climate change. Uh, forests, of course, help. They soak up uh, carbon, but they are vulnerable to climate change as well. And uh, uh, William Andreg and uh, others, in a recent uh, paper published in Ecology Letters, is looking at uh, future risks. Um, and uh, guess what we do uh, will affect the, the forests. Um, uh, we were also talking about a, another paper. William Andreg was uh, involved in that one. Uh, it was published in Science. Um, so, William Underberg, what what were you setting out to to look at in in the, this paper published in Ecology Letters? Well, you know, some of this is motivated out of really just uh, living in the West um, for most of my life, and especially these past five to ten years, where uh, every summer it seems like we have a another drought and these huge, intense fire seasons, and. What we really wanted to do was put all the pieces together um, and ask what are the, the risks that forests across the U.S. face uh, from wildfire, from drought and climate stress, and from insects, things like bark beetles. Um, what does that look like? How, how, what have those risks been in the past 20 to 40 years in the period that we have pretty good data? And... Uh, you know, if we can model this as a, a sensitive, you know, a, a function of temperature and, and precipitation, what does the next century of climate change look like for these three big disturbances and, and threats to U.S. forests? So how did you go about this? I understand you used satellite observations. Uh, what else? Yeah, this was a, 
this was an exciting study that took a, a huge amount of um, of work and also really wonderful collaborators that um, that helped a lot on this. We uh, for wildfires we have really incredible records in the U.S. Um, from satellites going back to the the early '80s, and this is you know really high resolution maps of fires and where they've burned. Uh, for drought and insects or, or climate stress and in insects, we turn to this huge data set that the Forest Service runs and curates, um, which is this, this massive network of permanent plots that they measure. They go out every five to 10 years and track the trees on these plots. Um, there's over 400,000 of these plots across the U.S., and it's just this incredible wealth of, of data on, on tree growth and tree mortality. So. We, these are called inventory plots, and we, we turn to these inventory plots to look at, you know, when and where has drought killed trees and when and where have insects killed trees. By the way, in your paper, you, uh, you, you have a section, you say, why open science? You're using open science here, uh, cloud-based, open source tools. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, you know, we, um, these are things that really affect all of us, and the, I think that... Uh, this information about what are the risks that forests face and and where and how is climate change going to alter those risks um, is something is is really information needed by a huge range of people and and stakeholders. Um, so we had this really this commitment going in that we wanted to make all of the data and all of the code and all of the tools uh, freely and publicly available on online. And so. Uh, you know, all of the data and all the code for this study is up there, but also um, with some collaborators at a nonprofit named Carbon Plan, we built this really nice tool that you can fly around and, and visualize a lot of the data sets, too. Uh, I want to quote uh, this from uh, the National Geographic. Uh, I think you put it well. This is William Andrew guest for today. Uh, we have a whole set of mechanisms that are pushing Earth's forests to grow more and suck up more CO2. But those mechanisms are fundamentally in tension with mechanisms that are pulling Earth's forests toward a cliff with more tree death and loss of carbon. And I guess you're looking at scenarios here to see which one, I don't know, quote-unquote, wins. That's right. And, you know, this, this really isn't hypothetical because in the, in the Western U.S., really in the past decade, we've started to see some of these climate stresses win out and actually have more mortality than growth in some of our forests in the West. Uh, things like the huge mountain pine needle outbreak, um, and also it, it really looks like the recent uh, severe drought in California from 2011 to 2017 might have pushed huge swaths of, of Western U.S. forests to die more than they grow and to actually lose carbon. And so this... Um, you know, this, is, this isn't hypothetical. We really want to understand what does climate change mean for these forests and, uh, you know, what do the next couple, three to five to eight decades look like? As you put it in bold relief, as you just said, uh, you know, some forests, that extreme stress, wildfires, drought, whatever, insects, uh, go from being a carbon sink to actually a source of carbon. That's right, and that's one of the the big thing, one of the big concerns that scientists have. We want to understand uh, how likely is this, when and where might this happen, uh, and you know how how much climate change is needed to push forests off a cliff. And uh, as you as we discussed a little earlier, this also really ties back to how much we want to rely on forests as a climate change 
solution tool through things like forest offsets, that there are large areas that might actually lose forests in the 21st century. We probably don't want to be betting on those areas as, as part of our climate change mitigation strategies. So you analyze the historic relationship between climate conditions and those, those risks, right, fire, drought, and insects. Um, by using those, those factors that you uh, you mentioned. And then I guess you use that to see that correlation, and then you try to project? Is that what you do? Yeah, that's exactly right. We, we use this huge wealth of data that we have in the U.S. for the past uh, it's 20 years for, for insects and drought and about 40 years for wildfires. And we, we build these relationships, these statistical models that connect the climate and the ecosystems found there to the amount of fire, drought, and insect-driven mortality. And then we can use uh, this, these wonderful tools of, of climate models that are projecting uh, future changes in temperature and, and precipitation um, out over the 21st century and, and really ask, what does future climate change look like um, if these past relationships hold in the next, you know, four to eight decades? So you looked at uh, scenarios. Uh, tell me what the, um, I'm reading here, shared socioeconomic pathways, SSPs. What, uh, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so the, the, way, that, um, the way that we do this as, as climate scientists is, uh, of course, you know, no one really knows what the future looks like, but we can build a range of scenarios that really capture a range of, of future climate change. So uh, we can look at scenarios where, uh, in essence, nothing is done to tackle climate change, and we add a huge amount of CO2 to the atmosphere, all the way down to scenarios where you, uh, there's really aggressive action to tackle climate change, and, and we avoid the worst impacts by, by really... Uh, transitioning the carbon to a low-carbon economy and reducing CO2 emissions. We looked at, at really three scenarios. We looked at a, a very high climate change scenario, uh, a medium-high scenario, and then a, a medium-low scenario of climate change. And uh, one of the biggest findings of this study was that the scenario mattered immensely. Probably the single largest control for the risks that our forests are going to face is what we do on climate change in the next couple decades. So I'm looking at this interactive map. Uh, I linked over, uh, I think, from Ecology uh, Letters. Carbonplan.org um, is is the is the site. It, this is uh, this is quite spectacular. You you can toggle you know fire, drought, or insects, and and then go you know toggle the years at 2010 up to 2090 uh, to to see what might happen. Um, so let's talk about some of, some of these scenarios. Uh, first of all, maybe fire. Uh, what's worst case that you found? Worst case is, is, not, is not pretty. Uh, so especially towards the end of the century, in, uh, and you know, there's some variability based on the climate model as well. We have six different climate models to, to capture a range of, of that um, even within a scenario. And, you know, worst case increases are in the, you know, really potentially a five to tenfold increase in wildfire area burned, um, which is a lot. Uh, just, just for a, a historical note, actually the area burned has already gone up about fourfold since the 1960s and 70s. 
um, and about half of that is due to climate change. So we're already seeing a huge increase in wildfire in the past 50 years, um, and we could see an equally large, if not larger, change in the next 50 to 80 years. Uh, it's worth noting that that worst-case scenario is probably the very upper limit. Um, you know, there, there are certainly things that we can't account for in this modeling approach, and I'm happy to talk about those. But even other studies that have, have tried to look at similar things have found, you know, maybe a doubling or more of area burned from wildfires in these high climate change scenarios. What, what can't we account for? So one of the, the trickiest things to account for is uh, what what vegetation comes back after the fire. And, you know, is it the same forest that comes back or different species? How fire resistant or flammable might the new forest or the new species be? And, you know, is that going to act to maybe slightly buffer and reduce the threat of fire or will it be equally flammable and, and by when? And so, you know, in, in our, in our models, we're not able to get some of those feedbacks about what grows back afterwards. Um, but nevertheless, I, I mean, I think it's, it's, no, even even models that try to capture these feedbacks are telling us that high climate change scenarios bring a lot more fire in the West. Mm. By the way, this uh, National Geographic article, there was a, a, a scientist, I can't remember who, who was, uh, she says, you know, we're seeing that uh, some of these forests are not coming back. And then she says, by not coming back, I mean not a single tree. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a worst case scenario. I get in some cases they, you know, do come back and you're saying, we don't know, you know, what the character of the forest will be after that. But in some cases, just, just not coming back at all. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, <laughs> that, that actually means less fuel and less area to burn. And so that does slow down the area burned, but it's really from this big negative consequence of having lost forests from some of those regions. So I don't think it's a, it's something that we don't want to see happen really yeah yeah for sure now your uh the best case scenario what uh what are we looking at with in terms of fire so the best case scenario in the uh moderate to uh moderate to low climate change scenario is is on the order of a two to fourfold increase in fire and so that's um that's still a lot, but it's it's slowing down the trend from what we've seen already. And I, um, you know, I, I very much hope that's the the future path that we find ourselves on. By the way, this uh, what you're what you're using is your low. Uh, I think you say somewhere in here that uh, that's not the absolute low, but uh, I don't know. Maybe we're being realistic by choosing that as your low. <laughs> that's right. There there are. Um, really about two scenarios that uh, the, these groups that put out the scenarios um, that, that are lower, that are really low emission scenarios, low climate change scenarios. Um, w- <laughs> There's a, a pretty active scientific debate on whether those are really realistic and still feasible, given that we haven't done a lot to tackle climate change in the past 20 years. Um, so we decided to choose sort of a, a low but still definitely realistic scenario uh, as our low end. Mm-hmm. By the way, if you just joined us, we're talking with William Andereg. He is associate professor in the University of Utah School of Biological Sciences, um, and he's an author on two new studies that uh, show how uh, uh, climate change could reshape forests. And we're talking about uh, one of those studies right now. Um, so... 
Let's go to drought. Uh, if you if you look at these, uh, you know, various scenarios, maybe on this one, let's start with best case scenario. What, uh, w- you know, what are the risk factors? How do things look with regard to drought? Yeah, the um, the drought models are not quite as um, is uh, quite as dramatic in terms of the increased projections. And actually, I think this is one of the cases where our models are maybe a little bit on the, the cautious side uh, or the overly conservative side. Um, in the best case scenarios, uh, drought-driven tree mortality rises about 10 to 20% or 30%. Um, and it's that's sort of on par with what we've been seeing in the past two decades. There, the drought-driven mortality, you know, with these huge severe droughts, that we've had in Utah in 2018, 2020, um, had a really bad one around the the turn of the millennium in 2002. Those have driven these pretty large waves of tree mortality. um, And, you know, seeing more frequent and more severe droughts, we expect those those pulses of mortality to continue and and potentially to ramp up. Mm. What about worst-case scenario? Worst-case scenario is close to a doubling of, of drought mortality um, in our models. It's, it's about an 80% increase. It's, um, you know, there are other studies and other uh, models out there that s- suggest even quite a bit higher tree mortality uh, from drought. And so I think my guess is, you know, if I uh, just thinking about what our models have in them and aren't able to capture yet, that these drought drought mortality scenarios might be on the the low end. Mm. Uh, let's go to uh, the, the third interactive map: insects. Uh, tell me, best case, worst case scenario with with insects. Yeah, the insect scenarios are actually fairly similar to the drought scenarios. They because they come from uh, similar data sets, but the the kind of range is between a you know a twenty percent increase in the best case up to close to a doubling in the worst case. Um, Again, here, these are probably on the low end. What's fascinating on the, the insect side is that this is um, these are systems that are really hard to understand and to model, and it's because climate not only affects the trees and how well they can defend and fend off um, attackers, but it also directly affects the insect populations. Uh, you know, warming winters mean that fewer insects die over the winter, and you can have these huge epidemics uh, like we've seen in, in some of these bark beetles. And that's pretty hard to capture. If, <laughs> if that's thinking about the potential for uh, pests and pathogens and what might emerge that we're not able to, to really capture is, is definitely one of the, the things that keeps me awake at night because I think, you know, it's kind of like trying to predict the next pandemic. We, we really need to... Uh, collect a lot more data and think about what are the possibilities here, and it's, it's really tough to model. You have, um, uh, you have a, a, I guess, a map which is connected with the other maps, uh, uh, biomass. Why did you include that, and what does that show? Yeah, we wanted to give a sense with that on, on really where, uh, where are forests in the U.S. and how much of the biomass and the carbon that forests store is really at risk here, is really threatened by these three disturbances. And so that, that was really to give, give anyone who wants to look at it a sense of, um, 
you know, how, how much carbon is potentially at risk from these climate changes. Hmm. Uh, of course, risk varies by region, right? And you show that uh, in in uh, in the map, some graphs here. Uh, when I click on West Coast, uh, much higher risk than, say, Southeast. Yeah, that's right. And this is is a very clear pattern uh, across our study and and many other studies that broadly Western forests are a lot higher risk from fire, drought, and insects. Um, and in particular, you know, here in the Southwest, we're at some of the highest risks that we are at the high, some of the highest risks for fire and also for, for drought stress. Mm. What about here in Utah? Where do we kind of in the middle somewhere for risk or where are we? We're definitely on the higher end. Higher um, end, okay. I, yeah, I haven't, I haven't looked at the state by state rankings. My, just by, uh, you know, spending a lot of time staring at the maps, I would say we're, probably in the top five or six states for these risks, but maybe not the very top one. I think the, the very top one for risk usually jumps out as California gets, um, looks like it just gets hammered by all three of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm reading here that um, by 2090, fire risk could exceed 50% in a high emissions uh, scenario on the West Coast. Uh, tell us what, the, what that means, uh, 50% risk. Yeah. Um, so it, it means that in some of these grid cells um, that, you know, you, you could see, you know, in, in these, these larger grid cells, a fire occurring in that area uh, every other year. Mm. Um, that's, you know, that's in the really highest risk places. And it's probable that, you know, eventually, because you're burning so much biomass that that's, <laughs> that area burned may come down because there's just less fuel there, um, which, you know, it does decrease the risk, but it's for all, for these reasons that we've, we've lost a lot of the benefits that forests are giving us in that region. And we, we have seen, I think, you know, in recent years, uh, uh, the size of fires increasing, intensity. I don't know if your you know, risk factors measure that. Yeah, they they do a little bit. So um, certainly, uh, we are capturing the the size of fires that we're seeing a lot bigger fires and a lot more of these uh, big fires. Um, and our our models definitely capture that. We weren't trying to model at this point the really the intensity of fires or how hot or how much you know how many trees are killed. Um, from satellites, they, this satellite data set gives you a couple categories of intensity, and here we're modeling this, the, the two highest categories, the severe and the moderate fires, um, and we weren't trying to model the, the kind of low-severity uh, fires that, that probably don't kill trees. They probably just clear out a lot of the underbrush in most systems. I'm reading again from your study, uh, while our results stress the importance of reducing emissions, they offer a sobering lesson about the degree to which forest risk will increase, irrespective of what climate action we take now. Uh, tell me more about that. Well, there's no doubt the risks are already going up um, and have gone up in the past 20 years with, with the climate change that's already happening. You know, it's uh, climate change is already with us, and it's... It, really visible in these fires and droughts. Uh, 
And and some amount of climate change is sort of locked in for the the greenhouse gases that we've put up already. Um, That's probably the case for the next decade or so. I think the, the key point here, though, is that things can get really, really gnarly towards the end of the century in about two, you know, 20 years, 30 years onward. And that's where our actions today matter enormously, that the next decade we have this window of opportunity to tackle climate change um, and steer ourselves off those really high emission scenarios. And if we're able to do that, to bend this emissions curve and come back down to much safer levels, um, we can head off a huge amount of future risks. I mean, going from the high emission scenario to the moderate and low emission scenario in our studies um, can really, you know, reduce the amount of risk um, immensely by, you know, a factor of five or more. Um, and that, uh, of course, you're not a psychologist. That's what. <laughs> but uh, it seems like future risk uh, hits us. It tends to hit us uh, less than immediate risk. <laughs> right. But I, I mean, I guess it's true. It, and thinking, you know, down the road, what does what is 20 years, 30 years from now look like is pretty hard. But I I would say that, you know, we we are experiencing this already. We you know, we're breathing the smoke that comes from these wildfires already. And, you know, this is this is a really clear example of, of climate change impacting us already. And and what we do matters enormously that if, you know, we, we can really take actions today to try to head off um, breathing a lot more smoke and losing a lot of our forests this century. And so that's one of the, one of the big key takeaways from your, your paper, right? Um, cutting emissions does matter to the forest. Yes, it matters. It matters a lot. And this is something that actually is, is really clear, not just in, in our study, but in many studies in the literature, that one of the single biggest, if not the single biggest thing um, that we can do for forests to keep them healthy uh, across the globe is to really cut emissions. What would you say to um, the people who are hanging their hat, uh, so to speak, on forests as carbon sinks, you know, these car- carbon offsets? I get, I get urge a bit of caution on that? I would urge caution. I, I think that we, we really need a lot more... Uh, a lot more careful science and a lot more evidence that these forests might are going to be able to stick around for a hundred years or more uh, before there's a huge rush to um, to count on forests and to really leverage forests in our our um, carbon offsetting or, or climate mitigation goals. It's uh, you know there are a lot of really positive things that forests do for us outside of the climate sphere, and I I think. You know, conserving forests for those many other benefits is a really great idea. The challenge with carbon offsets is that you are are saying you're going to count on forests to lock up carbon, but then keep burning carbon somewhere else in the system. And if a forest actually then, you know, 10 years from now burns and loses a lot of that carbon, you've really undermined the whole point of climate policy. So we, we need to be very careful and try to base this on the best data we can um, you know, we're, this is one of the reasons for open science and, and one of the reasons that we're trying to do a lot of this work now is to get these maps of risk out there and to help people plan. And really, in, there's, I think, a pretty broad um, understanding among scientists that 
we ought to be really thinking about carbon offsets as a tool of last resort that you only turn to after you've been very, very serious about reducing the direct emissions from your activities. Mm. Um, uh, there are some organizations out there with some very ambitious tree planting programs. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, yeah, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit, uh, I have some mixed thoughts there. I, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, restoring forests um, in the right regions with kind of the right species and engaging the communities around there um, definitely can be a positive and can be a win-win. Um, I'm a lot more skeptical about it as a widespread climate change solution for a couple of reasons. First is that forests take quite a while to grow. And so when you do a bunch of tree planting, you don't really start to see carbon getting locked out of the atmosphere um, at high levels until several decades down the road. So it's a very slow climate change solution and not something that we need, you know, now this, this decade. Um, the second reason I'm a little skeptical is you also – you need to make sure that those trees then survive and, and grow and, and live for a um, hundred years or more. And that has been the downfall of a lot of tree planting goals um, and a lot of tree planting campaigns is that, you know, maybe you get a tree established for a year or two, but it's dead within 10 years. And so really planning carefully and figuring out where trees are going to survive and restoring forests that have been lost rather than planting trees in areas that weren't forests to begin with, um, I think is, is pretty urgently needed there. Hmm. Let's take another break. We'll come back with a brief uh, final segment with William Anderig. Uh He is associate professor in the University of Utah School of Biological Sciences. He's uh, an author on two new studies that show how um, risk factors could reshape forests. And we've been talking about that. When we come back, uh, William Andreg, I'd, I'd love to uh, talk about a, maybe a couple of uh, other of your papers. One, uh, I think is fairly recent, uh, study leaking climate change to increases in U.S. Uh, pollen seasons. Um, I'm looking at andreglab.net, by the way, if people want to go there. Uh, we'll have more following this. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've uh, reached our last segment. It's going to be uh, quite uh, brief, about five minutes here at the end. But uh, uh, we're talking with William Andereg, um, who is Associate Professor in the University of Utah School of Biological Sciences. We have been talking about forests and uh, risk factors to forests, including fires and drought and insects. I wanted to uh, hit a couple things uh, here at the end, just very briefly. Um, this is something that affects a lot of us. Um, you've been involved in studies, William Andreg, uh, apparently uh, in how rising temperatures prolong uh, the pollen season could worsen allergies. So tell me briefly about this. Yeah, this was a really fun study that we published. Uh, so we we really looked at what is, what's happening to U.S. pollen seasons uh, over the past 30 years. And uh, how much might climate change be driving changes that we're, that we're seeing? And what we found was between the early 90s and 2018, uh, pollen seasons are starting a lot earlier. They're starting about three weeks earlier. They're lasting longer, and there's about 20% more pollen in the air. And that um, a significant fraction of all of those trends was really due to, to rising temperatures and climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm reading here, you, uh, there's a forest resilience lab. That's right. We, uh, you know, related to these these past studies we were just talking about, about risks to forests, 
uh, we're undertaking a pretty large effort to try to map and and get the data out there for what does climate change mean for Utah's forests, for the West, and for the whole U.S. Uh, and you know, let's get some of the tools out there for people to actually use this science and, and base decisions on it. Mm. So I noticed there's a tab on your you know various um, different um, areas of research at the Antarctic Lab. One that caught my eye is um, hunting and fishing and climate change. Yeah, I you know, this is something that's near and dear to me. I, uh, I grew up in Colorado um, doing a lot of hunting and fishing, and uh, there are a lot of, of really great groups out there, um, groups like, you know, Trout Unlimited, uh, the, a group in Montana called Conservation Hawks that are really – really rightly calling, uh, shedding a light on this, that climate change is going to have really big impacts on hunting and fishing in the West, uh, particularly things like cold water fishing. And uh, so, you know, as a, as a hunter and angler, this is something that it, I'm concerned about. And I think we also need, you know, more, more research to understand what it means for our, our, um, this sort of piece of our heritage. Yeah, yeah, very. You know, a lot of people uh, really enjoy it, and it, it's good to good to see the interaction. It's groups out there working on this, right? There are, you know, I think they don't get enough attention that these these groups are doing really fantastic work. They've put out a couple really great reports that summarize uh, what's known to date, and I think, uh, you know, I hope folks will check them out and really support the work they're doing. Mm. Uh, finally, I think we have room for this. Um, uh, there's a link on your website there uh, to a study. I guess this came out uh, late last year. Um, I'll just read the title. Rapid increases in shrubland and forest intrinsic water use efficiency during ongoing mega drought. I guess uh, uh, these, these these plants and trees adapt, do they? Or what lessons maybe we can learn? Yeah, they do to some degree. And that's, mm-hmm. that's something we are really... Uh, trying to understand is how much can plants adapt to the to the new normal how much can they adapt to the mega drought that we're in and um, we, we do see that uh, shrubs in particular but trees to some degree uh, are becoming more efficient with the water that they use so they they get more carbon and lose less water uh, and so that is good news it's also unfortunately clear that 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 may not be enough especially in high climate change scenarios and so there's, um, you know, I, we, we'd like to understand uh, how much uh, acclimation capacity and buffering is there in, in plants and in these forests. Um, there's definitely some, but it's, uh, it's looking like it may not be enough depending on the speed of climate change. Mm. Well, a very interesting and important work here. Uh, William Andereg has been our guest, Associate Professor in University of Utah School of Biological Sciences. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll go out as we always do on Wednesdays with the Beehive Archive. Thanks for listening. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. This week, find out how a season of terrible floods left Salt Lake City residents with a memorable scene. Their neighbors packing sandbags to create a river running down State Street. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. 
Young characteristically wet winter and spring seasons between 1982 and 1983 set the stage for historic floods and mudslides throughout Utah. For months, officials worried about record rainfall and increased snowpack, anticipating that warmer weather would result in disaster. Water managers throughout the state lowered reservoirs but stood no chance against the warming temperatures and increasing runoff. Their fears proved correct on Memorial Day weekend when temperatures rose, causing massive floods from Thistle to Bountiful and even Great Salt Lake. State workers responded quickly. On May 26, 1983, Salt Lake County declared an emergency and diverted rising waters from Red Butte, Immigration, and Parley's Creeks. In their race to control the floods, officials overlooked the swelling City Creek in downtown Salt Lake's Memory Grove Park. As the water rapidly rose, city engineers diverted the runoff down State Street to a storm drain a few blocks away. Thousands of volunteers responded to their call for help, hauling and stacking heavy sandbags in an effort to channel the runaway waters. The diversion resulted in the State Street River, a makeshift waterway nearly two feet deep gushing down the road that leads from Utah State Capitol Building. Unsurprisingly, the new river caused major issues with commuters and downtown businesses, prompting the city to send out crews to build pedestrian bridges over the floodwaters. Recreation lovers embraced the new river. Some cast fishing lines along State Street, while kayakers complained that the bridges left too little headroom to paddle downstream. Within a couple of weeks, City Creek receded and its waters channeled beneath North Temple, taking with it the State Street River. For those who lived through the event, it isn't just the stress of battling the flood or the sidewalk fishermen or even the kayakers that they remember. No, the most striking were the thousands of community-minded volunteers who spent their holiday weekend filling and placing sandbags to halt flood damage in order to protect their neighborhood's business and save their downtown. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.